We're actually going to look at the first chapter of John this week and next week, but the first passage we're going to look at is going to be John 20, verse 30. Now, last Christmas, Christmas 2017, uh, we did a three-week special Christmas mini-series, Christmas according to Luke, Christmas according to Matthew, Christmas according to John, in that order for some reasons. This year, Christmas 2018, I want to go back to Christmas according to John and look really closely for two Sundays at what he tells us, uh, and I want you to think about it this way, we're going to be looking at truth for Christmas and for all the other days of the year also, and here's the, the truth that Christmas tells us. Jesus is not just another preacher. Jesus is not just another prophet. He is the incarnation of God in human form. So the old saying, Jesus is the reason for the season. When my mom first heard that, she just loved that, which I thought was great. And she had a, a, a display in her front yard that said that. Jesus is the reason for the season. And you guys know that. But as the culture continues to spiral out of a biblical orbit, people don't know that. Uh, the young boy I mentor at Horace Mann once a week did not know Christmas was Jesus' birthday. Um, the, re- the real reason for Christmas that we're told in this culture is it's a time for peace on earth. The real reason is uh, for Christmas season is it's a time for miracles or it's a time to get together with your family. And they'll tell you these reasons for Christmas. And I think those things are good. I'm all for peace on earth and I'm all good uh, for getting together with your family. But the real, real reason for Christmas is the babe in the manger was the God-man savior. Now those other things may spin off of that ideally, but those other things should not replace that. Now you know that, but we're going to reinforce that for you from the gospel of John, Lord willing, the next couple of weeks. But as we look at Christmas according to John in some detail, Let's uh, pray for teachability to God's word and also for those who protect and serve us. And uh, Stan, the man, would you lead us in prayer in that direction? Thank you, Stan. Let's get some uh, abstract thought warming up uh, with the Christmas season in mind. What is a lion's favorite Christmas song? Jungle Bells. Thank you. Brother to sister, I know how you can get a puppy for Christmas. Sister to brother, how tell mom you want a pony. Anyone who thinks men are superior to women has never seen a man try to wrap a Christmas present. Santa won't be coming down chimneys this year because it was declared too dangerous by the Elf and Safety Commission. See, not the Health and Safety Commission. It's the Elf. And finally... Why are broken drums some of the best Christmas presents ever? You can't beat them. Okay. Let's move rapidly uh, to why we're here. Christmas, according to the first unit in the Gospel of John, the organized prologue of the Gospel of John, if you want to look at the theology of Christmas, uh, it kind of looks like this. Uh, we're daring to believe that God the Father loved the world so much that God the Son took on humanity without ceasing to be deity, not at the birth, but at the virgin conception. So you have one person, uh, two natures, fully God, fully man, lived the perfect righteous life, 
So as the perfect Lamb of God, he could pay for the sins of the world. He validated that payment with his literal resurrection and then ascended to heaven where we're awaiting the, the lion to come and end history on God's terms. So what we're going to do the next two weeks really is talk about the context of this passage, John 1, verse 1 through 18, and then the content of this passage. So let's talk about the context a little bit. You've already turned to John 20, verse 30 for a particular reason. There's our kind of baseline diagram of what the Bible is teaching us in a synthetic sense. It's a big book. It only has two parts, though. The Old Testament are the books written when? Summer before Jesus came the first time. And the Old Testament emphasizes that all human beings sin and come short of the glory of God, and they all die physically. Uh, the major promise of the Old Testament is God's going to send a Messiah to take care of the sin problem and eventually rule the world. Now, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have Christmas uh, the incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ. And then by the many of the eyewitnesses of that and a few others, uh, we have the New Testament produced. The one major premise of the New Testament, Mike, is Jesus of Nazareth was the one God promised. So you might say, boom, that's what Christmas is all about. It's the fulfillment of this promise that God has been giving from uh, Genesis 3.15 until that that moment or that uh, that period of his life, and the one big promise of the New Testament is what Jesus is coming back. He's he's not done yet, right? He's finished the work of redemption, but he hasn't finished the work of consummation. But he's going to consummate history on God's terms. And Geraldine, you're going to like it because evil will have been permitted, evil will have been defeated, evil will be forever punished and quarantined. And all those, by God's grace, have come to him will live in a perfect universe. You like this one? You like the good parts of this one? going to be so much better, infinitely better. Now, that's the biblical context for the New Testament books like John. Let's talk about the context for the very first part of John by looking at the structure of John. Uh, these books are very carefully composed so you can understand what they mean. And John puts his purpose statement, he hangs the key, Carol, to his book at the back door. And you guys are looking at John 20, right? Verse 30. And he tells you at the end of the body of the book, I know there's another chapter, but it's an epilogue, it's a conclusion. But at the very end of the main part of the book, he says this. I'm reading New American Standard Bible. Therefore, many other signs, Jesus performs seven major signs in the resurrection in the Gospel of John. John doesn't tell you about all the other signs Jesus did. Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, like John, the guy writing this book, which are not written in this book. So what does that mean? John's saying, look, I'm not trying to be comprehensive. There's a lot of cool stuff Jesus did and said I'm not going to tell you about. I've got a, I'm a purpose-driven writer, and here's the, pur- here's the purpose of the book. But these have been written, these have been included in this particular document we call the Gospel of John, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. We're just supposed to believe that's his last name? What's the big deal about that? Christ isn't his last name, it's one of his most important titles. It means the one anointed by God the Father to take care of the sin problem and eventually rule the world and bring in a perfect universe. That Jesus is the Christ, he is the promised Savior of the Old Testament, He's the Son of God, not God's little boy, but the same as God in his character, exactly. And that believing, you would have 
not biological life, but Zoe, spiritual life, in his name, based on who he is and what he did. So that's the purpose statement hanging at the back door. Now, under that purpose statement, the body of the book has three parts. First, we have the specific seven signs Jesus did that John wanted you to really emphasize. And it's interesting. The first one lines up with our Life of Christ A through Z system, uh, and it is G. Remember what G stands for? Great guests at the wedding reception. Jesus does his first miracle. Then the seventh and final sign that John specifically, he's not making these up, but he's just selecting them for impact, is letter T. We saw that a couple weeks ago, Ken. T stands for tomb traumatized. Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus, two miles outside of Bethlehem. Lazarus has been biologically dead, not just clinically dead, for four days, and Jesus supernaturally resuscitates him. Uh, URD, Upper Room Discourse. This is what Jesus teaches in connection with the Last Supper, just before he gets arrested. This is the last teaching session he's ever going to have, in that sense, with his uh, disciples. And he tells them, you know, in a little while you're not going to see me anymore. I'm going to be gone. Let me tell you how you can continue to abide, to fellowship with me when I'm not physically walking around with you like I have been. And he tells them in the Upper Room Discourse, the content of which is repeated and amplified in the letter of 1 John in the back of the New Testament, tells believers how we can be fruitful and how we can be spiritually vital by abiding in him when he's no longer physically walking around with us. And in the A through Z system, that's we haven't gotten there yet. That's letter W, washing in wisdom. That's If you want to know the most important passage on the spiritual life in the Bible, in my humble opinion, it's got to be the Lord Jesus telling you how it works. That's the whole engine of the system. It's not a bunch of rules. It's a focus on a relationship. So, of course, you obey the rules. But you never notice how cool you are for obeying the rules because you're focusing on a ruler who's first your savior. The ultimate sign, the third part of the body of the Gospel of John to achieve these purposes, he said, in the key statement, is what? The resurrection of Jesus. Jack, nobody else has been resurrected from the dead like that. Okay, Jesus predicted not just his death, but his resurrection as early as John 2. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. So that's the ultimate sign. After that, we have this organized conclusion, the epilogue, and then the organized beginning, verses 1 through 18. Please turn there if you're not there. Go to chapter 1 in the Gospel of John. We're going to focus on this prologue today and next time. And without getting too much into the weeds, let's just say this thing is exquisitely organized with kind of a, um, let's take a stair step up to the most important part structure. If you put that on its side, this parallelism, this this distant parallelism works toward and away from the most important part of this section. We're going to look at this most important central section next week, Lord willing, and weather permitting. You never know this time of year, right? But I want you to notice we've got this uh, distance parallelism where the, where the very first thing said in the unit lines up with the very last thing. I can remember remember as a kid, and I think I mentioned this once, that the first Bible I ever had for my own, it wasn't this exact one, but it was one like this. You walked into the grocery store in Opelika, Florida. I was probably about third or fourth grade, and they had a shopping basket full of these things, and they were like 50 cents. And this was the newest, best paraphrase, 
in the world, supposedly, and they're selling it for 50 cents. And I didn't have any income, but I taught my mom to buy me this thing. And I remember the first thing I tried to read was the Gospel of John, because somebody had told me at church that was the place you should start. And I think that is a very good place to start. And it's funny, I, I haven't, this is actually Debbie's version of this. I'm not sure how, you know, you got one too. I guess great people think alike. You know, she's probably in Needle in Texas, scrounging through the shopping cart in the grocery store, right? But uh, I remember looking at John, because somebody had said you should read it, and I, now i got a paraphrase so I can read this thing. And uh, it's actually quite nicely done, except one problem that messed me up. This is the way they paraphrase it in the uh, Good News for Modern Man paraphrase. John 1, verses 1 through 3. Before the world was created, the Word already existed. That's, that's, a, that's a really good rendering. That's what that means. In the beginning was the Word. It means in the beginning the Word already was. Before the world was created, the Word, which is the title for Jesus, but I didn't know that at the time, already existed. He was with God, meaning with God the Father, and He was the same as God. That's pretty good. He was full deity. From the very beginning, the Word was with God. Through him, God made all things, not one thing, and all creation was made without him. Now, the thing that threw me off was when I read the word word in the Bible, I didn't know the word was the title for Jesus. I thought it meant the Bible. So in the beginning was the word. Uh, the, the Bible was already existing before creation, but it says he. Why is he calling him he? So it just threw me off. Okay, But I thought that was a pretty good rendering. And we're going to focus on the central part next week, but today what we're going to do is we're going to pair up, and I've done this before, but I want to look at a few things I haven't done before. We're going to look at this passage by looking at what we'll call the first twin, the word with God the Father, verse 1 and 2. Then we're going to drop down to verse 18, because those are paired, okay? Then we're going to get a B, C, D today. Then we're going to look at the center section this time. If that's of interest to you, bless you. If you don't care, doesn't matter. Now let's look and see what it says, okay? Look at verses uh, 1 and 2. And then we'll look at verse 18 because the structure pairs them up, okay? In the beginning, that should sound familiar if you've read your Bible before. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, Jesus the Word, this is my paraphrase, already was, and he was in fellowship with God the Father. They, hey, Sydney, the Godhead didn't create us because they were lonely. They're not lonely. They don't need us. Okay, super grace, they created anything, much less us. In the beginning, Jesus, who's called the Word here. Now, why would that be a title? It, it makes sense to call Jesus the light or the way or the life. That makes sense. But why call him the Word? Isn't the Word the Bible? Jesus is the living word, your Bible's the written word, but the exact word that's used there, should say words, the definite article ha, and then the word logos, is an interesting particular word, we get logic from it, right? L-O-G-O-S, but watch this, the, the Greek word logos doesn't just refer to the letters of a written word, like T-R-E-E, -E. what word is that? Some people say I shoot over your heads, T-R-E, let's go, C-A-T. Okay, that's the word cat, okay, that's a word. But logos refers not just to the letters of a word, but to what the letters the word represents. The logos of cat is a cat. The logos of T-R-E-E -E is a tree, right? The logos of God, Jesus is the logos of God, he's what? He's God. That's what that means, okay? 
And he's going to explain that so you can't miss it. In the beginning, Jesus, the Lagos of God, God himself in human form, already was. He was in fellowship with God the Father, so he's a different person than the Father, not the same person. And he was God. He was full deity himself. He was in the beginning and even before the beginning with God the Father. Drop down to verse 18. No one has seen God the Father at any time. Now you should know that if you've all, if you've read the Gospel of John, because what does Jesus say in chapter 4? God the Father is spirit. Remember that? That means he's invisible, right? Uh, to whom did Jesus say that? Blanche, I know you probably know that, so don't. Don't uh, enlighten us, the rest of us. To whom did Jesus say, God is spirit? To Nicodemus, the theologian? No, to the woman at the well, the Samaritan, the immoral lady, you know. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Right. So no one has seen God the Father at any time, but the unique member of the Trinity, who is now, as John writes this, I used to hold, the standard dating that even conservatives hold is that the Gospel of John is written pretty late, quite late, maybe 90 A.D., as he's the last living apostle. But I've been convinced in the last couple of years, reading some data, that um, the Gospel of John was almost certainly written about 69, which is interesting because of some several historical factors I won't get bogged down into. But anyway, whenever John wrote this in 69 or 90 A.D., Jesus is at the right hand of the Father as John's writing this after the fact, right? So the unique member of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who's now at the right hand of God the Father since the ascension, he has demonstrated what God is. We're touching on two of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith here, the deity of Christ and the Holy Trinity. These things stand and fall together. They're both true. But if you want to be cool and you want to be politically correct and you start denying one of these, you lose both of them. You can't have one without the other. They're both true. You can; These are not to be negotiated or, or, or compromised away. Uh, the deity of Christ means that Jesus is God. Where do I get that? John 1 just said it, right? The Gospels make it very clear. But I like to remember Jesus Christ 1-2, which stands for John 1 and Colossians 2. What does John 1 say? We just saw it. In the beginning, the Word already was. The Word was with God the Father, and the Word was deity. The Word was God, was the second person of the Trinity kind of thing. Uh, Colossians 2, verse 9 says, I remember the first time I told Olga this. I mean, she lit up like a Christmas tree. I mean, it actually says that. In him, all the fullness of, in Jesus, in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Talking about the incarnation of Jesus. So, that's a memory device to remember those things. Uh, sometimes you wonder, why do I go to all this trouble to do this stuff? Nobody's listening. And then Angie comes back from Uganda and says, I'm so glad Brad taught us all these memory devices because, you know, when people are freaking out over the deity of Christ, I can remember Jesus Christ one too. So it actually can be a good thing for people. Uh, but here's the problem with those verses. You know what the problem with those verses are? Skeptics. These skeptics are so nasty. They're so mean. They'll say well, John 1 is what John said about Jesus, but who cares about John? Colossians 2 is what Paul said about Jesus. Who cares about them? They were crazy. They were maniacs. They were fanatics, you know. Jesus never claimed to be God. Yeah, he did. 
Lots of times. In fact, that was the indictment against him, right? Uh, as we've seen recently. John 8, John 10. Jesus holding up an 8 by 10 glossy picture of himself. Before Abraham was, I am. They try to stone him. John 10, I and the Father are the same thing. I am God. Uh, they pick up stones to stone him. He says, why are you stoning me? Because you being a man claim to be God. So those, I think those are good verses to start with. There are lots of others, but that's kind of where I would start. Uh, John 1's emphasizing the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ is consistent with, in part and parcel with, the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, The doctrine of the Trinity is saying that the true God, the only real God, is one, but he exists in three distinct persons. One uh, Bible teacher says, think of God as one what and three who's. I think that's a fairly good way to start thinking about it. Where are you going to find that in the Bible, Jack? If somebody says the Trinity, some people said the Trinity was invented at a the first major church council in 325, the Council of Nicaea, and he's a three-headed monster. That's not the biblical conception of God. Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you that. Uh, that's an early, late first century diagram that I you know, kind of reproduced very badly. As early as the late first century, they're trying to draw pictures of this thing on two dimensions. One God, three persons. And what this is saying is the Father is fully deity, but he's not the Son nor the Holy Spirit. The Son is full deity. The Father is the Son. The Word is God, but he's distinct from the Father, and he's not the Holy Spirit either. And the Holy Spirit, who's a person, when we sin in the Christian life, we grieve the Holy Spirit. Okay, Forces like electricity can't be grieved, Chris. Forces like gravity you work with electricity and gravity all the time. <laughs> you know, can't be grieved. Okay? It's only persons, mind, will, and emotion. Holy Spirit's a person. He's fully God. He has all the attributes of God. But the Holy Spirit's not the Son nor the Father. This affirmation in verses 1 and 2 and verse 18 of John 1 is emphasizing the deity of Christ, consistent with the Trinity. Uh, the Trinity is the doctrine. There's one God who exists in three persons. And when we say they're equal in essence, we're saying everything that the Father is, the Son is. Everything the Son is, the Holy Spirit and the Father is. They're all got the exact same nature, character, essence. They have all the same attributes. Uh, We've we walked through this many times, and it's very important. I think the first lesson of theology, as James will tell you, is there's only one God and you ain't him. That's the most important lesson of theology, right? But the true God exists in three persons. You wouldn't make it up because nobody understands it. And when you think about the plan of salvation, you know, the Lord emphasizes himself, I'm not here to do what I want to do. I'm here to do the Father's will. God the Father is the author of the plan of salvation. God the Son's the active agent. He's the sendee. God the Father's the sender. Right, Wendy? Jesus is the sendee. Because that's the role he takes. He takes a subordinate role, even though he's fully co-equal. Okay, so submission is not something that can be forced. Compliance can be forced. Submission is something you give to the powers that be around you, including uh, submitting to human government, which Paul says uh, a couple of times, but Romans 13 is the most important one. Of course, Paul in Paul's day, uh, the Roman emperors were all Christians, and the Roman Empire was a very Christianized situation, so it's easy for them to submit to the powers that be, right? You don't believe that, do you? You know, the first... Uh, Christian emperor doesn't happen until the 4th century. Yeah, uh, Actually, the, the purpose of government is to control evil. 
And although a government can do things that we cannot bow before, in general, we ought to be law-abiding citizens, right? The Father is the author of the plan of salvation. The Son is the active agent. He actually becomes humanity without ceasing to be deity, lives the perfect life, dies and pays for the sin, rises again, etc. And the Holy Spirit is the activating agent. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and draws receptive hearts so we can see and believe in the gospel. So all that good stuff is there in that first set of twins. We're going to call those twins A, verses 1 and 2, and then verse 18. Drop down to verse uh, 3, please. Let's look at the second set of twins, verse 3 and verse 17, because of that uh, parallelism, the way the structure of the passage is set up. Verse 3 and verse 17 tells us that Jesus, the Word, is the active agent of physical and spiritual creation. All things came into being through him. Apart from him, nothing. And not just the planets and the stars, but the subatomic particles we're talking about, the quarks, the neutrons, the protons, all that stuff comes out of the active work of Jesus Christ. Nothing came into being that's come into being. Drop down to verse 17. That's physical creation. Verse 17 emphasizes Jesus, the word, is the active agent of spiritual creation. For the law, which was wholly just and good in context, but only partial and preliminary, pointing to Christ in his incarnation, pointing to Christmas and the cross, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth in its ultimate form has been given in and through Jesus Christ. Now go back to verse 3. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being has come into being in the physical universe. Now that's a hard concept to wrap your mind around, but there are only four options for ultimate reality. If anything now exists, that is if the universe is not imaginary, something or someone must be outside of time, or else the source of everything popped in out of, popped into existence out of absolutely nothing by absolutely nothing. That's all you got, okay? You might say, well, how could God always be there? Well, you've either got a universe that's always been there, which is no longer possible scientifically. The, the Big Bang physics has disproven the steady state theory. You've either got a transcendent, outside of time, space, eternal creator, or you've got a universe which popped into existence out of absolutely nothing by absolutely nothing. Now, if you've seen the movie, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. Remember that? Why wasn't I up there on the stage with you? I mean, with that kind of a, that kind of talent, right? Uh, now, I love that. I love that. Uh, you know, when the, uh, Duncan Little Theater did the, uh, Sound of Music, was that last year? Two years ago? Was it that long ago? It was, it was incredible. It was just such an incredible, uh, uh, production and everything. But that is such a timeless story. You've got the, this little family standing against evil, and you know you've got good guys, you've got bad guys, no compromise. He's not going to serve for the Fuhrer, you know, and he puts his family at risk, and it's an awesome thing. But uh, boy, that's the last time I'm going to sing uh, anytime soon. Go back to verse 17. We're saying that Jesus was the active agent of physical creation. He's the transcendent being that actively, a member of the Trinity, created the universe. And he also is the basis for spiritual uh, creation uh, through his work and his role in the plan. Now, 
Let me show you something there. Let's go ahead and go there. Um, I'm kind of out of sync, but I'll, I'll show you something. Um, talking about the Trinity, people will say, well, what passage can I go to to prove the Trinity in, in, the, in the Bible? Well, I would say, uh, personally, I like to start with the baptism passage in Matthew 28. Remember, Jesus says, I go into all the world, make disciples, and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I think that's a good place to start. People go, oh, yeah, one one name, one God, three persons. Passages like that. But uh, people will say, well, you've got New Testament passages that say that, but you've got no Old Testament passages where you see all three members of the Trinity. And you know what? Peg, there are Old Testament passages that have all three members of the Trinity. You see allusions to the Trinity in the Old Testament as early as Genesis 1, 26, right? Let us make human beings in our image according to our spiritual likeness with moral, the power of choice. Who's he talking to there? Who's God talking to? Let us make man. Some people say to angels. We're not created in the image of angels. We're totally different creatures. We're a race. They're in order. Uh, that's an allusion to the Trinity. But one of the, and there are several, but I, my favorite Old Testament passage, which has all three members of the Holy Trinity uh, in the Old Testament, is Isaiah 61, where the servant of the Lord, the major character, prophetic character in the gospel, in the gospel according to Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, says, the spirit of the Lord God, been here on Wednesday nights lately, look, Lord God, all caps for God, interesting. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. That's the servant of the Lord. That's the Messiah. That's the Christ speaking. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, the servant of the Lord, because the Lord, the Lord God, they're all caps. What does that mean? Has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives. Just so happens we saw this title in Ezekiel, Lord God, God all caps recently, and we've been talking about it the last couple of weeks. You got the word Elohim in the Hebrew Bible, which is translated G-O-D, with lowercase O-D. You've got the term Adonai, which is for God as the sovereign one over all persons, places, and things, and it's spelled capital L, lowercase O-R-D. And then you've got the personal, covenantal, salvation name for God, Yahweh, which is translated all caps, right? Which emphasizes his personal nature and his self-existence. But, and this is looking at the passage in Ezekiel, not in John, or in Isaiah 61. But you've got Lord G-O-D. Now, looking back at my graphic here, I don't explain. We're saying it can be spelled God with not all caps, or Lord with all caps, but I don't have a category for Lord G-O-D and it's all caps. That's because when you have this particular title for God, Adonai, Lord, Yahweh, that word that's usually translated L-O-R-D, all caps, when you got those together, rather than translating it Lord, Lord, which would sound odd, they translate it Lord God, all caps, saying this is the salvation name for God. Now, by the way, notice in the margins of most Bibles, you have lists of verses why do they do that? Those are called cross-references. They're going to try to help you in your Bible study by showing you some related verses you might want to check out. Now, notice when you read Isaiah 61, where the Messiah, Jesus, 
is prophetically interacting with the Spirit and with God the Father, all three members of the Trinity right there, uh, that passage is alluded to in this cross-reference, Luke 4.18. What happened in Luke 4.18? Uh, here's where our A through Z system helps us again, Carol. K. What's K? Ken kick out. Jesus has begun his ministry, comes back to town, goes to the synagogue on Saturday morning. They hand him the Isaiah scroll. He opens it up towards Mark. It just happens to be Mark to Isaiah 61. And he says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because Yahweh, God the Father, has anointed me to preach good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Then he sat down to explain what that passage meant, sat down in front of the group, and he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, I'm the servant of the Lord God in Isaiah 61. And of course, they were so happy to hear that, right? No, they were very, very upset about that. Okay, let's go to verses 4 and 5. Jesus, the Word, the visible expression of God because He's God in human form, is the issue and issuer of spiritual life and spiritual light. Gotta love this. You gotta love Him, man. In Him was life, not bios, biological life, but zoe, spiritual life. And the life, that's a title for Him, which is why I capitalized the T and the L, was also the light of men. And watch this. Verse 5 says, And the light shines. Present active, uh, indicative, keeps on shining in the darkness even after his death, resurrection, and ascension, as John's writing this. And the darkness, the world system which hates him then and now, did not comprehend it, or him, you could translate. Drop down to verse uh, 16. This is the fraternal twin here of that statement. Through Jesus, the word, we've all received his fullness, grace upon grace. Sounds almost like from faith to faith in Romans. But go back to verse 5. The light keeps on shining even though they arrested him and crucified him because what happened three days after he was crucified? He was resurrected. And then he ministered for 40 days. Then he ascended and now he's manifesting himself lots of different ways, but primarily through the New Testament church and through the New Testament, right? Uh, but here's the thing. Uh, it says, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And you may be seeing different translations. But that word comprehend is a particular New Testament word, katalambano, and it means to grasp. It means to grab. It means to hold on to something with your mind so you control it or physically to grab someone and hold them to control them. Okay, I wonder which meaning John intends when he says the darkness did not grasp Jesus to understand him, did not grasp him to control him and overcome him. I think one interesting thing about the Gospel of John is he quite often says things that mean two different things at the same time, and he's intending you to see both. Did the world at large understand spiritually who Jesus was? Say no, right? Did the world system, the Roman uh, government at the behest, uh, the you know, I guess Pilate checked off on it reluctantly, the Jewish religious leaders got it started, but the Romans crucified Christ. They seemingly did grasp him and control him, didn't they? Temporarily, right? John's writing this after the resurrection. He's saying, look, it looks like if you just look at those three days, like we lose. 
like he was just another idealistic preacher that bumped up against the man, and the man just stopped on him and crucified him. But the crucifixion doesn't make sense without what happens three days later. What is it? Resurrection. And look at the resurrection. They didn't control him. Jesus says, I could, I could stop this anytime I want to. I'm submitting to this, okay? You gotta to submit to some unfair things at work, some unfair, bizarre things in the culture occasionally, and that offends you, and you can't deal with it if everybody doesn't bow down to your preferences. Get over it, man. The Eagles had a song, unfortunately it's got some bad words in it, but it's the, one of the best rock songs of all time. Just get over it. Quit whining about stuff, you know? If anybody can do it, it's gotta be us. Jesus was not overcome by the world. He permitted that for redemptive reasons. And God has a plan designed for your life, so even the bad stuff that happens has redemptive reasons, even if you don't know what they are, even if you won't understand them until after you get checked into heaven. Hopefully not anytime soon, but we'll see. You know, Some of you don't look that good out there, but maybe it's after listening to me. Um, that may have done it, right? Um, look at verse 16, this parallel uh, twin with verses 4 and 5. Through Jesus the word, we all have received his fullness. We is a first-person plural. This is John and his believing readers. So if you're a believer, you're somebody he's referring to. We've received his fullness. Look like he loses if you just look at uh, Thursday night, Friday morning, Saturday. On Sunday, it looks like he wins. And it's obvious he wins, right, Kylie? Because of the resurrection. It wasn't that they uh, weren't permitted to kill him. It's that God raised him from the dead. Uh, I like this graphic. Uh, through Moses... You know, uh, the law was given through Jesus Christ, and now we have, because of him, his fullness, grace upon grace, means grace in its ultimate form. You know, that's our baseline Bible di- uh, diagram, right, graphic. You know, here's how the Old Testament applies to that. The Mosaic law was partial, preliminary, pointing us to Christ, a schoolmaster to lead history to Christ. But in Romans, we're told Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. So we got, we're right in the middle of a big plan and we're in this very privileged position between the first and second coming of Christ. So cheer up. It's going to get a lot worse and it's going to get a whole lot better. That's the biblical point of view. Let's look at our last twin component here this morning. Look at verses six through eight and then we'll look at their, her twin, uh, verse 15. Jesus, the word was correctly identified as the savior as the servant of, of the Lord, as God in human form, by John the Baptist. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. Another thing that really confused me when I read this Gospel of John the first time was, uh, you know, Peg, I, I saw the reference to the Word, and I knew what the Word meant. It meant the Bible. So we got the Bible floating around before the beginning, which kind of blew my mind. In the mind of God, sure, but not in bound form. And then, uh, this is the Gospel according to John, and the sixth verse says there was a guy named John. So it's got to be the guy who wrote the Gospel of John, right? And that's a, it's a different John. Uh, in fact, it's John the Baptist. But you know what? You've never heard this before. John the Baptist wasn't a Baptist. He was a Jewish prophet, right? There came a man. He's just a man. Jesus isn't just a man. He's the God-man. Sent from God after 450 years of silence. The Jews, as a nation, were used to having living prophets, and some of them wrote scripture. But at the end of the book of Malachi, written in about 430, and John shows up about really 460 years later, there's been no written scripture, there's been no 
talking prophets either. That is called the, the silent period, the intertestamental period. I wonder why God stopped talking to them. Because the Old Testament was done, and that's that's what they needed at that point. They needed to reflect on that. And if they had, they would have received Christ much more readily as opposed to explaining it away. But yeah, we've got this bombastic prophet who looks a lot like Elijah, the most, one of the most famous speaking prophets, right? His name is John. We call him John the Baptist because he's John the baptizing Jewish prophet. And he came as a witness. He didn't, he wasn't the deal. He came to point everybody to the deal, you know? He came as a witness. That's all preachers are. We're just kind of uh, pointing to something much bigger than us to testify about the light, the word, the life. Any of those titles apply, but here, the light. I always like to think uh, John the Baptist and Billy Graham and James Mitchell and Brad McCord, we're kind of like the moon and Jesus is like the sun, right? Uh, we talk about the moon shining, right? We talk about moonlight. I guess if that was in the Bible, people would say, hey, they thought the moon was producing light. No, they didn't. They're just talking about the way it looks. Phenomenological language. Uh, the moon is a dead rock, right? It doesn't produce any light. But why do we see the moon at night? Because the sunlight bounces off of it. So um, beware of large religious bureaucracies, especially those who are titled by the person running them. Send your money to the Brad McCoy ministry. I mean, who's going to name a ministry after themselves? I mean, it's, it's crazy I, to me. Because what happens when you get promoted, you know? You're no longer around it, running anymore or whatever. You know, I guess your son runs it or whatever. But anyway, and I'm going to give Billy Graham an exemption to that. He's the one, he's the exception that proves the rule. You know, I think at some point he became so well known. They, we'll just put that label on so everybody know what we're talking about from the get-go. But uh, it uh, it always amuses me when somebody who is uh, not very well known and probably not going to become very well known names the ministry after themselves. I just think it's kind of weird. Um, it wasn't the John the Baptist ministry. It was John the baptizing Jewish ministry about Jesus, right? And that's what we're supposed to do too. Uh, he was not the light, but he came to testify the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Drop down to verse 15. John the Baptist testified Jesus, uh, and he said, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, because he existed before me. Um, I can remember, I remember, I guess I've always loved John. I always loved the Gospel of John. I always loved John. He's my favorite Bible character, short of the Lord Jesus. And so, you know, I tried to read it and the word threw me off and then I, I read it and I thought John in verse six must have been John, the guy writing the book. And then, uh, as I read it as an older person, I thought, isn't it weird that John the Apostle mentions John the Baptist in verse six through eight and then stops talking about him, but then suddenly talks about him again in verse 15. And now I know we've got this inverted parallelism working toward that center, and that's why he does. That's why he does that. So maybe that's why I've been always enamored with that. Uh, what exactly did John say when he testified about Jesus? Look at chapter one, verse twenty-nine. We're almost done. I'm about to put myself out of your misery or whatever. The next day, Jesus saw. Uh, the next day, he, John, saw Jesus coming to him. He's baptized Jesus. Jesus has gone in the wilderness, been tempted, been gone for several months. He comes back to where John the Baptist is. The next day, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming to him, and he says, John, that's the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. That's the guy I told you I baptized, and he's the Messiah. He's the reason I'm doing my ministry, to promote him. Drop down to verse 35. Again, the next day, 
John, the baptizing Jewish prophet, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked as Jesus, as he walked by, he said, Behold, there's the Lamb of God again. And I love this. Two of John's disciples heard John point toward Jesus as the Lamb of God, as the Messiah, the whole reason for his ministry. Uh, and they followed Jesus. Well, really, started walking after him to interact with him. Jesus turned and saw them saying, what do you seek? They said, Rabbi, where do you live? Where are you staying? <laughs> we want to sit down and have a chat. And he said, come and you'll see. So they came and they saw where he was staying temporarily. This is in southern Israel. They all, all those guys are from northern Israel. The five original disciples and Jesus, they're just there temporarily. Uh, and he said, come and you'll see. And they saw where he was staying. They stayed with him the rest of that day. And one of the two who heard John say, that's the Lamb of God, and followed him was Andrew. Now, Andrew's important because who his brother was, okay? And, and don't tell Andrew that in heaven, okay? He, he's important because of who he is too, but, uh, Andrew was Simon Peter's brother. So the first thing Andrew does after spending a, a big part of that morning with Jesus, he goes and finds Simon, that's Peter's real name, and said, we found the Messiah, we found the Lamb of God, which means the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus gives him the nickname, and the story goes on. I love that. Uh, and when I read verse 15, I kind of think about that. Now, uh, realize, when we say Jesus is the Lamb of God, we don't mean that literally. We mean he's the sacrifice that took away the sins of the world. The gospel is a noun. It's not an adjective, but it's used as an adjective. We have gospel bookstores, gospel jamborees, gospel ministries, all this kind of stuff. And a lot of people don't even know what the gospel means. But in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, let me remind you about the very first thing I preached when I first came to Corinth. It's what saves you if you've believed it, and it doesn't change. And it's the fact that Christ, as the Lamb of God, died for our sins. What does SAS stand for? Substitutionary Atoning Sacrifice. And he was raised on the third day, literal, bodily, supernatural resurrection. That's the gospel. The gospel is the saving truth that Christ died for our sins and rose again. And when sinners acknowledge their sins, the Holy Spirit helps you do this, rather than redefining it or rationalizing it, and recognizes their inability to save themselves, so they embrace Jesus as Savior, God gives you the gift of eternal life. Now, he doesn't just give you a get-out-of-hell free card, he gives you a whole new capacity to serve him, and you're supposed to and expected to, but all that good stuff that comes out of that is the effect, it's the fruit, it's not the root, okay? So we've looked at uh, this first portion of the prologue of John, Lord willing, we'll look at the center portion next week, so if you want to read ahead, read verses 9 through 14, because the whole thing is designed to force you into that section, where he basically gives a gospel invitation. He was in the world. The world had been made through him, but the world really didn't understand him, didn't want him. He came into his own, the Jewish people specifically. Most of them didn't want to receive him. But as many as receive him, saving faith is not just mental assent, it's full consent of the will. I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. You can, and I want you to. I receive you as my Savior. It's not what you do for God. It's what he does for you. But as many as received him, Jew or Gentile, moral, Nicodemus, immoral, Samaritan, woman at the well, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to contribute to God to those who believe, pistuo, active receptive trust in his name. So we'll look at that very closely next week. But right now we're thinking about truth 
for Christmas 2018 and all the other days of the year. Jesus isn't just another prophet, preacher, or religious figure. He's the incarnation of God in human form. And so the real, real meaning of Christmas isn't about what Santa says, which is ho, ho, ho. It's about who, who, who Jesus is. And the real, real meaning of Christmas is this mind-blowing, very offensive-sounding message that the babe in the manger was the, emphasized the exclusivity, was the God-man Savior. So, you know, we give gifts at Christmas because God has given us the ultimate gift. Somebody said you can love without, or you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving, right? So, uh, I mean, i show you how much I love Debbie. You know what I got her for her birthday? Vacuum cleaner. At her request. And what else was it? Oh, we're going to get uh, gas logs. So when the next uh, ice storm comes, we'll actually because we have gas, we'll have gas, you know, we'll, we'll be able to stay warm around the fire and sing Christmas carols and stuff like that. But when I think about God giving in salvation, you got to think of John three sixteen. God the Father, the Author of the plan, right? You know that God the Father loved the world so much He gave His Son, and His Son was willing to accept that secondary role to actually do the work. That whosoever, in the Greek text is much more explicit, Julie, it says, that all of the ones who believe in him. That means you too. That means me too. That's the good part. So we give gifts at Christmas because God gave us the ultimate gift in the incarnation. So thanks be to God for his ultimate gift, indescribable gift. Let's close in prayer. Father, please enlarge our uh, capacity to appreciate, love, worship, and serve our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, especially this time of year. Uh, Give us a special sense of joy as we reflect on all that was involved in your purposes and the the Savior's love to enter into this uh, mortal coil in this uh, world of sin, death, and pain, and to experience the human condition and to redeem all who would trust in him. We thank you for the gift of salvation, and I pray you would make us especially generous of spirit uh, and uh, even physically with our funds and our possessions this time of year as a reflection of how much we appreciate the gift of the Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.